Taking you inside the world of music, this is Inside Music Cast with Rick Such and Eddie Cabello. On this episode, Inside Music Cast welcomes Robert Lamb. Welcome to Inside Music Cast, a podcast devoted to musicians, fans, and the people that make music happen. I'm Rick Such. And I'm Eddie Cabello. Welcome, everybody, from around the world. And as Rick mentioned, Inside Music Cast is devoted to bringing you candid interviews, news, and information with the musicians, fans, and people that make music happen. That's right. This is the podcast that goes beyond the pop star and features the talent behind the talent. So if you're ready, let's get started. Robert Lamb's voice is one of the most recognizable voices in the world of music. As an original member of the Grammy award-winning band Chicago, his lead vocal and keyboard skills remain key to the Chicago sound that has endured 40 years and is still going strong. They are one of the most successful touring bands, having toured last year with Earth, Wind & Fire and are currently on tour with America. This only means that the market for their sound has become not only younger, but also hungrier for their music. As a skilled songwriter, Robert has penned Chicago classics such as Beginnings, Does Anybody Really Know What Time It Is, 25 or 6 to 4, and Saturday in the Park. While still extremely committed to the band, Robert is still discovering new horizons as a solo artist when it comes to his own music. From his highly acclaimed solo release, Subtlety and Passion, to Leap of Faith, he has something to say and isn't about to let the music stop talking. Inside Music Cast is pleased to welcome Robert Lamb, a true classic in the music world. Hey, Robert, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Rick. So, first of all, congratulations to you and the rest of uh, Chicago for 40 years together as a band. And, you know, not only is that a phenomenal achievement, but one that not too many bands can stake a claim to. Absolutely. Uh, I can't think of hardly any bands. I mean, maybe the Stones and what, the Moody Blues, perhaps? Yeah. The Beach Boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, even though there there have been some changes over the years of uh, of members in the band, um, but you know, Chicago continues to to draw huge crowds at concerts, and you know, um, I mean, the fan base is young, it's old, and it's you know still continues to be very, very, very high. So, um, you know, what do you feel? That's what's the magic? I mean, what's what's still attracting people to to the Chicago sound? Truly, I can only guess. Um... And, yeah, we are noticing that uh, the fan base is sort of self-renewing. Mm-hmm. It is. You know? And uh, so I, I have to say it must be the quality of the songs, either the songs that we write or the songs that we co-write or right. the songs that we find. Uh, and I think it's the the cohesiveness of the playing in the band. You know, the, all the guys are, are fine musicians, but yeah. it's the cohesiveness that I think people notice, and you don't really get it in in many other situations. Mm-hmm. Now, I have to say that I, you know, I I don't go out and listen to music as much as uh, some people do because I'm I'm usually pretty busy. Right. Um, but so I I can't really say that none of the more recent bands, the younger bands, are are as cohesive as Chicago is because I think that you know that would be kind of overstating it, but. Uh, and there are some really good bands out there now. But I think that the thing that draws audiences to Chicago is the fact that there's a sense that Chicago is the real deal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I totally agree with you, right? You know, I have a couple of young, uh, you know, teenage daughters, and the stuff that they're listening to right now, it's, it's, it really surprises me. 
I I sort of assumed a couple of years back that they were listening to, well, you know, a lot of uh, you know the hip hop, which is all there and cool and so forth. But you know, I I was mildly surprised to find out that they're listening to to bands like you know the well the, they know every single Beatles song and and they love Elton John and and it's that seventies. And my my daughter told me she goes, I love the seventies. I love that sound. It just seems so so real, just like you said, you know. And they're connecting with it. Um. I you know it it must be the it must be the songs and it must be the way mm-hmm. the uh, the recordings by and large were not you know canned in any way you know they were you know I mean they were all obviously multi-tracked and that sort of thing but they were not manipulated to the degree that we all manipulate recordings nowadays mm-hmm. you know with computers. I've got a sort of an offshoot question when when you hear any Chicago samples. <laughs> do you take that as a compliment or an offense? What, how do oh, you it's see a compliment. It? It's totally compliment. Yeah. Oh yeah, I have to take it as such. Now sometimes it's successful and sometimes it's not. Right. And to a large degree, since people started sampling other recordings, uh, you know, I get a chance to kind of approve or not approve. Mm-hmm. And there's only been a couple of times when I just thought, you know, this really sucks, <laughs> you know, and I'm not going to approve this. But I, you know, most of the time I'm I'm real open, and I, you know, I I enjoy yeah. hearing how a, a slice of uh, Chicago's oh, yeah. music is used in in, <laughs> in new music. <laughs> and I have to say though, sometimes I'll be hearing music, you know, you know, on the radio, or you know, walking through a shop or something like that, mm-hmm. and I'll hear like a bass line, or I'll I'll hear like a two bar thing, and right. I know it's off of one of our records. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah <laughs> I yeah. know it. You know, and it's just like you know, it, you know, it's just a, like a little bass riff with mm-hmm. a little drum turn, and I know where it's from. It's just that that one hook. Nobody else could have done it, and and so do you grin and just smile and say <laughs> they had to they had to go ahead and use it, you know? Yeah. Hey, of the of the eight current members of the band, you know, four I think are still original members, and yes. uh, Bill Champlin and Jason Sheff have been there for you know well over twenty years each, and then the. I guess you could say the relative newcomers are Tris and, and Keith Halland. And right. how, how easily or difficult has it been over the years to embrace a new member mm-hmm. and indoctrinate them into the Chicago family? Well, um, in some cases it's been easier than other cases, but um, I think that it's probably harder on the, on the incoming member right. than it is on the, on the founding members. You know, because people, you know, we're always trying to figure out where we fit in in, in new situations. So uh, the unique thing about Chicago is that once we, when we started, we realized that this was a group endeavor and that everybody kind of found a role other than, you know, what, they obvi- what their obvious instrument yeah, was. Yeah, right. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. But in any kind of, gr- any kind of group endeavor, uh, there are different roles that, are, that must be assumed. Uh, and usually they're assumed by the guy that, you know, does certain things better than other guys. Mm-hmm. So that's probably been the trickiest thing uh, for the for the newer guys coming in is to try to figure out where they fit in and what their contribution, what their role uh, is going to be. Yeah. And sometimes it takes a little longer than other times to you know for that for that to all shake itself out. But I think we're pretty much there. Give me an example. You mentioned that um, you know just a couple of seconds ago that some band members are. Are better at some things or whatever. And give me an example of somebody that's really good at something. There. Well, um, I'll give you the not so obvious ones. Okay. A not so obvious one would be, for instance, 
I'm probably really good at kind of speaking off the cuff, okay. uh, whether it's an interview or actually even standing on stage. If you know, if I'm, if I, like last night, uh, a drum head broke, so you know, it's it interrupted the flow of of the set. Uh-huh. So I basically had to start kind of like vamping a little bit, for time. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I'm fine with that. I, you know, I because you know. I'm as guilty as the next guy of saying really dumb shit off the top of my head, and, and I don't care. And it seems you know, to flow it's, right. It's no, it's no big deal. But some of the other guys in the band really get uptight about, you know, they really try want to work out what they're going to say on stage ahead of time. Right, yeah. And, and they kind of say the same thing every night because that's their comfort zone. Right. But me, I just try to I let it fly every which way every mm-hmm. night. Were you a high school thespian in, in, in drama? Were you sort <laughs> no, of, I wasn't. Or were you just... Uh, you know, <laughs> no, some... I was actually rather introverted. <laughs> really? I was rather introverted, yeah. Interesting. So that's one thing. And then I, I would say that, for instance, Lee Lochnane mm-hmm. is sort of the fulcrum point of the balance of the band. You know, they're sort of left-wing and right-wing people, okay. not just politically, but just, <laughs> okay. you know, for emotional and... Mm-hmm. intellectual makeup but lee is kind of like right dead center so if you wanted to get an accurate read on you know what the band is thinking what we might should be doing mm-hmm. or what we might should be saying lee is probably the guy that you'd want to listen to yeah he'd be not the, that he would be necessarily be right right but he would be he would be kind of yeah. in the middle he'd be the litmus if you test talk to me i'm a radical if you talk to Jimmy Panko, he's a strict conservative. So, there you go. <laughs> That's interesting. And when it comes to uh, songwriting, you know, Chicago seems to have always taken sort of a sort of a group effort approach to crafting songs. I mean, even on your recent Chicago 30 release, there were, I guess there were several people involved mm-hmm. in the writing process. And are the songs written more on an individual basis or is there more collaboration between the members? Yeah. Well, it... it uh it varies from era to era right. and from project to project. Um, on Chicago 30, we obviously were interested in exploring songwriting as the people in Nashville do it. And so I had a situation where um, rather than just collaborating with one guy or maybe two guys, uh, I was thrust in a situation where there were maybe four of us kind of sitting around a kitchen table in Nashville with our laptops open and our guitars out and just kind of you know, really kind of doing a group mm-hmm. songwriting thing. Mm-hmm. That's very different f- for me. Uh, but that was kind of what that album was about. It was really about, let's go to Nashville where, where the song is all important. It's not about the production. It's not about the beat. It's yeah. not about the samples. It's about the song. Okay. So... So that was a very interesting uh, experience for me, and I really learned a lot, and uh, I gained a lot of uh, uh, admiration for for the guys who work in, in that genre and mm-hmm. work in that town. I mean, there's some really gifted guys. Mm-hmm, definitely. Well, you just also mentioned that you know that the whole approach to sitting around a kitchen table with your laptops and, and guitars and, and you're creating songs collaboratively. How is that in comparison to how you would have written a song, you know, uh, ten years ago? Um, well, uh, ten years ago, well, I, I would say probably by the mid '80s, um, I think that that's when, uh, as far as Chicago is concerned, the music industry really kind of uh, dictated what uh, the record companies and radio were going to accept 
from Chicago in terms of songs. Mm-hmm. And that whole crazy thing where the the producer comes in and says, "Okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna co-write all the songs with with you guys, and that's how we're gonna make this album." It was totally foreign to uh, to all of us, you know, for the 15 albums before that. Right. So, uh, so 10 years ago, it was really st- sort of still about collaborating with someone else, either in the band or someone outside the band. Yeah. Uh, with the theory that two heads are better than one, or you know, somebody you know somebody might know, probably knows something more about songwriting than I do, or <laughs> probably knows something more about lyric writing than I do. And and I think the collaboration was as much uh, a part of the creative process as whatever the result was. Yeah, I got a question here. You you mentioned you know um, later on the process it was brand new to you to be thrown in with a producer saying I'm going to co-write the thing the 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 record with you let let's get started and and they were driving it with with that uh, you know that in mind. Was there any a time when? that process and the later albums did not work, in your opinion? I mean, it worked for as long as it created hits, either hits on radio yeah. or or successful album, or or just, you know, some you know, interesting music that sounded like it really came from, you know, the band or it, 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 as a result of it being played by the band. But... Um, uh, I've never, you know, I never thought that that anything that didn't come from, mostly from the band, mm-hmm. sounded like the band. Yeah. So, you know, you know once once you really get uh, um, producers kind of really trying to insinuate their taste uh, into what Chicago had had done so successfully for so long, right. I just think it was was a mistake. Yeah, I, I guess my, my point in that is saying is that, you know, these days, you know, I, I, I really feel that that artists seem to, they're forced to kneel down to the beck and call of of the dictation of the, the, the label and to get that one sound that's going to hit that, you know, uh, million-dollar album sales, you know, the hit record and whatever. And, and, uh, and, and the art of the craft, it just seems as if to be so sacrificed, you know, as to what, you know, and maybe that's the, these days it's the process. I read that, well, the first album, the second album is really driven. And once they find you successful, maybe the third they'll let you write your your projects. Isn't, isn't that true? That, that that happens. Well, that yeah, that does happen. And in the case of Chicago, we had a very long and successful run with a producer who worked with the band and believed that, you know, his, his instincts were to let the band write and create the music, and then he would just sort of like, mm-hmm. you know, referee the whole thing. And so we had a really long run at, at, at being successful at that. Uh, you know, we always sort of thought that, you know, once the 80s hit, that we, you know, if we if we played the game and and kneel down, as you say, uh, to the forces in the industry, mm-hmm. if we played the game and got success, then we could go ahead and go back to our old ways of, of let us alone and, you know, let, trust us yeah. to yeah. make... Uh, great music, or at least as great as we can make it, and mm-hmm. you know, hopefully people will hear it right. and, and and like it. And um, the one time that we did it was, you know, the Chicago Twenty Two, which never came out mm-hmm. because you know, you know, we were, we were left to our own devices. 
with a producer who let us do that. And then once the record company and the management and radio heard it, it wasn't what they wanted to hear. Was it a success for you guys, though? Oh, totally. Completely. And those songs never saw the light of day? Never saw the light of day. Oh. So in a, in a situation like that, Robert, uh, do you own the songs? Do they own the songs? Who's who? who are they going to stay in the dark forever? Oh, no. We have uh, – we retained ownership of ah, it. Okay. And actually, it's probably going – Rhino, is who, which now owns our all of our st- older stuff. Really? The Rhino? Is right? actually going to let it re- release it. And they're, really? They're, yeah, they're preparing it. And it'll probably be – if it's not this year, it will be early next year. Oh, that's good news. That's huge. And, I mean, where they're coming from is that it wasn't their call to release it or not release it in the first place. Mm-hmm. But now that they have it, they want to do it justice. And uh, they're going to do some interesting things like on the Chicago MySpace uh, page, they're going to probably start by uh, offering the demo versions of the songs that ended up on the album, that kind of thing. So oh, it's cool. real kind of interesting. They have a very unique approach to marketing, uh, you know, what I call them. Yeah, they love music. They do. <laughs> <laughs> That's their approach. We yeah. love music. And I think uh, I've got tons of Rhino stuff, and I'm like, I appreciate a company even going out there and, and doing that and offering that. Uh, and, right. And that's, right. that's really cool. Thank goodness somebody's doing it. I know. <laughs> really. <laughs> hey, you know, of course, your horn section has always been a trademark signature of the band sound. But, you know, I've always appreciated the fact that in Chicago, the singing duties are shared. Mm-hmm. You know, right. Terry Kath was certainly a key vocal element back in the 70s. But Chicago has always had the good fortune of having, you know, many great vocalists such as yourself and, and Peter Cetera, Bill Champlin and Jason Sheff. And, you know, no, no matter who is singing, your songs always have a distinguishable Chicago right. feel. Yeah. Uh, yeah, although I, I can remember having a very long sort of adversarial conversations with uh, a critic of the L.A. Times who said that, uh, you know, Chicago, you know for in spite of Chicago's success, we never had a singer in the band. <laughs> uh, the, hmm. Aren't the critics wonderful? You know, uh, you know, I, you know what do you, how, how do you even respond to something like that? I, I didn't know what to say. I was a silence there. I didn't I, <laughs> Really? Really? <laughs> so I sort of picture you just walking away and just saying, well, he just didn't. <laughs> yeah. Holy cow. That's amazing. You know, and I'm, you know, I'm amazed at the musicianship between you know, the various members of the band. And individually, you all bring various styles and musical elements to the table. And in many cases, this mesh of styles have often been the demise of many bands. Right, yeah. Well, I, I think that um, right from the right from the get-go, uh, the various sort of influences of the band is kind of what made it interesting. I mean, we were, you know, we're doing essentially CD-length LPs, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, in the early 70s. Yeah. And uh, I think that to make that much music interesting uh, within each album, it has to be a variety of style to to keep it to to make it interesting to, to the listener, mm-hmm. and certainly to make it interesting for us. So mm-hmm. I think that's that's been you know one of the strengths of the band. And um, again, you know, some uh, some people who are critical of the band. Uh, one of their things was that you know you know they you know that we don't have any particular style. Right. Well, that's good. I, I always said that that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not a blues band. You know, I I love blues, but we're not a blues band. Right. Mm-hmm. And if we did a blues cut, that doesn't mean we have to do another blues cut. Right. Or or, or a blues album. Mm-hmm. So, um, but there are a lot of people who don't get that. They they want to know that you know 
if a band sounds a certain way on one song, then they've got to sound that way on every song on every album. <laughs> it's just not the way it works. Every sound has to be that Chicago sound and so forth. And, you know, um, to to that point, are, are there any genres? I mean, not, not granted, uh, uh, you know, as musicians in Chicago, you, you – you, as individuals also, you have your own likes and your own appeals to different types of, of music and so forth. Are there any genres that collectively Chicago just, just won't touch, but you may touch them as an individual in, in projects and collaborations? You follow me? Well, um, not really. Okay. Um, I've read that you really have a real appreciation for jazz. You know, uh, um, is well, it, I like jazz, but I'm not a jazz player. Right. You know, I, I think that. Um, the closest Chicago came to, like, sort of trying to be jazzers was probably Chicago 7. Mm-hmm. And really, really, all we've been really been able to be successful at, as far as jazz is concerned, as an example, is to make compositions that sound like jazz compositions. Right. But um, other than, uh, I would say Jimmy Panko is probably the only jazz player in the band, really. Really, huh? I mean, the... You know, the rest of us can play things that sound like jazz, yeah. but we would be really, it would be very presumptuous for any of us to call ourselves jazz musicians mm-hmm. or to call Chicago a jazz band. Yeah. But I think that journalists, to help pigeonhole what they think the band sounds like, you know, we've been, we were given the label jazz rock at yeah. one time in our career. But, um, you know, I love, I love Brazilian music, as you may know. You know, I've been mm-hmm. working on a Bossa album. Right. For longer than I care to talk about, but <laughs> but uh, I I love uh, I love that era of Brazilian music, mm-hmm. and um, it has informed the way that I write songs. But I don't think it's right for Chicago. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think it would be right for Chicago yeah. to do a lot of a lot of Brazilian sounding stuff. Right. I but too. I think Chicago could do it, but right. it, it wouldn't necessarily be right. Mm-hmm. I I love Bossa Nova sounds. I mean, you know the the Sergio Mendes and Jobim and and you know just a few years back I I, I tripped over an artist that's uh, she's a female singer and uh, you you may have picked up uh, uh, one of her albums, but she's an amazingly just smooth. But it's it's that Bossa Nova feel. Her name is Gabriela Anders. If you ever if you ever have a chance to pick up a cut from Gabriella Anders, if you like Bossa Nova, that that is is just classic. It's so smooth. And she, is she uh is she uh contemporary or is she uh She she's uh, more contemporary. She yeah. Is. Yeah, but she it spills over the classic feel really spills over into into what she's doing. So I, I it's just I, uh, thank I, you very much. I'll I, check her out. You know, I I love Brazilian music and, and uh but but tell us while we were talking about the, the your your Bossa project. Uh me and Rick were on just a little earlier today in on the MySpace and uh we heard a couple of the tracks. Tell us a little bit about the project. It's uh, how's it going? The genesis of that project was it really came from a small production company in uh New York who approached uh, John Van Epps, uh, a producer that I've worked with uh, on a couple of other projects, and went to John and said, would Robert be interested in doing uh, you know, a Bossa project? So John knew that I would say yes right away, right. especially if it wasn't my money uh, <laughs> being used to make it. Uh, and so you know, he presented the idea, and I said, yeah, absolutely. You know, what, what exactly are they thinking? So what they were thinking was 
a combination of both covers of uh, classic bossa nova tunes and whatever else we, however else we wanted to address it. So uh, we wrote a couple of original bossas and we also arranged um, sort of jazzier standard tunes, if you will, uh, that lent themselves to that feel uh, because of their harmonic structure. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just started cutting about a year and a half ago. And as we sort of worked through it, and we were playing the uh, the initial mixes for the executive producers, they were thinking that they wanted it to be more uh, traditional stripped-down bossa. And we were thinking it should be more contemporary, kind of more ele- electro, mm-hmm. you know, sort of driven bossa. So uh, we were kind of giving them the kind of stripped-down uh, organic bossa stuff, but we were taking it and remixing it on our own time, mm-hmm. just for right. ourselves. Mm-hmm. So we essentially have two approaches available at whatever point we decide that we can get back in the studio and finish this thing. The, the, the tracks that you have on your MySpace, uh, your site, um, there's a, a cut, of, for instance, I think it's called uh, Girl, Girl Talk. Talk. Mm-hmm. Girl yeah. Talk. Yeah. Are, these, uh, are these roughs? Are these finished uh, final mixes? Are they Those just are experimental? Or, where, where are you going to take that? I think that's uh, – it's, uh, it, it's, it's fun. <laughs> I think, I, think uh, I can sort of read into it that you're, you're having a fun time with this project. Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, the, what you're hearing, anything you hear on MySpace is rough. Yeah. And – the more finished things, I'm not, you know, I'm not really at liberty to, you know, sure. let anybody hear those. Yeah. It's not my stuff. But um, did you play all the piano parts on this? I mean, uh, I didn't play anything. Nothing at all. Other than other than writing stuff. Yeah. I did my demos for the things that I've written for this project in GarageBand yeah. and dumped GarageBand into Digital Performer. Right. Mm-hmm. So you might hear some sort of wacky guitar performance that I played on a keyboard, <laughs> you know, kind of massaged by uh, by the producer, John Van Epps. Yeah. But other than that, my role in this project was to uh, essentially just sing and, and help arrange. Yeah. And, and it's been great because I can sing down in my range. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rather, than, rather than be a tenor, I can actually be a baritone, which yeah. is what I am. Well, there's a certain comfort to vocals in bossa nova because you you actually you almost have to have a little martini, a cigarette, and a blue spotlight, and you know, sort of like <laughs> yeah, sort of a lot of like air, that. yeah, a lot of air, and just <laughs> so I, it's not really air. a stressful sort of on your pipes, is it? <laughs> no, 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 not at all. <laughs> hey, Robert, I want to go. I want to go way back here for a minute. It, this is before you joined uh, Chicago Transit Authority. You you'd been involved with a couple of other bands that you were. And you were using the, the stage name of Bobby Charles, Bobby. And, uh-huh. <laughs> and you chose. You, am I right? You chose this name because Ray Charles heavily influenced you at that time. Yeah, uh, as a kid, uh, I, I listened a lot to Ray Charles. You know, when I was in high school and stuff. And um, the thing that appealed to me was that you know, uh, like me, Ray was <laughs> Ray was a vocalist who played piano, right? And uh, and I started noticing that, uh, listening to his early albums, that he was also writing a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And there was something about that that clicked for me. And not that I could even write a song, but uh, or, or come anywhere close to what he was doing. But uh, I just thought that that was, you know, this is like pre-Beatles actually. And I just thought that it was it was cool that an artist was writing his own repertoire. Yeah. And that that's something that 
that I filed away, and uh, I thought I would like to try to do that someday. Regarding his music, though, is it did his music capture you? Was it something you were really interested in? Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm like everybody else. You know, the minute I heard uh, what I say, that yeah. was like that was so unlike anything else on the radio. True. Yeah. Um, you know, the, and the sound of the world's or electric piano, and the sound of the rhythm section, the drumming. Uh, it was, you know, it was just something completely uh, outside my experience up to that point in my mm-hmm. tender young years. Mm-hmm. So, that, I mean, that that was the appeal. And, uh, you know, obviously the way that that Ray uh, sang, you know, it was you know, totally church-inspired, mm-hmm. but with, uh, the com- you know, musical command of a, of a jazz player, right, a right. jazz singer. Uh, did you ever have a chance to, to work with him or, or just meet him? Yeah, actually, uh, Ray introduced us on a television uh, tribute to Duke Ellington. And that was uh, that was a show that was uh, produced by Quincy Jones mm-hmm. as a tribute to Duke Ellington. And, uh, I mean, check out this lineup. It was uh, Duke Ellington, Count Basie, wow. Ray Charles, <laughs> uh, Joe Williams, Peggy Lee, Holy cow. Aretha Franklin. And we were sort of like the token jazz rockers, you know. <laughs> and we were actually given uh, a Duke Ellington song to arrange and perform. Something came to mind, too, that, that you guys were the only white guys, too. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there was another white singer. I mean, you know, Peggy Lee. Yeah, right. Oh, that's true. Yeah, Peggy Lee. Jeez. Peggy Lee, but, uh, but, you know, so at the opening of the show... Essentially, uh, and essentially, each act introduced the next act. Oh, that's cool! In alphabetical order. So Ray Charles introduced Chicago, mm-hmm. who introduced Sammy Davis Jr. Right. Wow! So on this show, I mean, I'm curious because it's uh, you know Quincy Jones as a musical director and and maybe probably the catalyst in getting this you know the compilation of these incredible artists together, including oh, yeah. you guys. So as a musical director, I mean, what, what was the preparation like? I mean, did you uh, hang with these guys, Duke Ellington? Well, Duke was uh, pretty close to his death at that point. Really, it was, uh, it was kind of the late '70s, and um, but what we did was, you know. Uh, in advance, everybody was sort of assigned, or you know, or, or offered a couple of different songs, uh, yeah. Duke's compositions to to choose to perform and arrange in their style. Gotcha. And so uh, we were given um, a song called "Jump for Joy." Wow. And, and Quincy just said, you know, just do what you do with that song, and you know, you can do whatever you want. So it was very cool. And uh, but there were a couple songs that everybody. You know, like the opening of the show, and then later on in the show, there was—I uh, think there was another number where, you know, all the artists or combinations of the artists performed. So yes, we did have to get together. Uh, I think we all got together at A and M Studios in Hollywood, right. and we were in one room. Every all the talent that I was talking about, we were all in one room. That is cool. With wow. a piano. Holy cow! <laughs> is there? A, you and know that's how, how we and that we learned we learned all the material for that for that. Show Jeez. in that room. That it would be so. It'd be so cool to have a snippet of that. Just to, you might find some of that on YouTube. Really? 
Yeah, you might have to look for that. Yeah, you might have to look at that. Make put a link on uh, on the site there, and then at least refer to it. And because uh, you know, just for what we're talking about, it's going to interest our audience quite a bit to to wonder, man, what the heck happened with that sound? I, I, I'm interested myself. Yeah. That's cool. Well, obviously, we were talking about Ray Charles, but were there some other influences, other people that inspired you in your writing style? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think everybody at some point was was uh, influenced by by uh, Lennon and, and McCartney. Mm-hmm. Uh, but earlier than that, I liked, uh, believe it or not, I, I liked what what um, Jobim was doing mm. when I was a kid. Wow. I, liked, I, I didn't really understand it technically, but I, I loved it, and uh, I listened to a lot to uh, Thelonious Monk, yeah. and um, I discovered uh, uh, Mose Allison yeah. uh, as a singer. I thought that between uh you know between Mose Allison and Ray Charles and Marvin Gaye that's kind of you know where I was going towards as a singer. Right. And a lot of people put this cat down but Burt Bacharach really taught a lot of us lessons. Yeah. Oh yeah. And on the classical side the composers like Debussy and mm-hmm. Ravel, Satie and um there's this one other French composer, kind of a minor French composer, mm-hmm. who really influenced me and I think influenced a lot of people, but nobody really admits it. So you have a classical appetite also? Oh, yeah. That's neat. I played violin throughout high school and everything for, for nine years, and I I still, you know, sort of instill my, my girls, you know, everything from opera to to classical music and so forth. And it's just important to touch everything. You, I, I want, you know, it's just important for people to be able to touch and not to isolate themselves to one genre, which I think is an incredibly dangerous thing to do. But, you know, listening to you and say that, boy, you have an appetite for classical and, and jazz, I mean, that that's, that, that's inspirational. That's neat. Well, you know, I think that once you develop an ear and you do start stretching out and listening to other styles, you realize that there's a lot of cross-collateralization going on. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of influence from all sides uh, coming into, you know, pop music. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not, you know, it didn't all it didn't all come from the blues and it didn't all come from the Beatles. It came from other places before that. You're right. And that's and that's that's really kind of a revelation. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. It is. Everything sort of it, it's cyclical. You know, I remember listening to not only playing classical music, but my my avenue in a way of of getting out of classical music to contemporary was an incredible violinist that this jazz violinist that that blew my mind away. His name he's a French guy named Jean Luc Ponty. Oh, and it's fantastic. Oh my goodness! And he and his blue electric violin. I mean, it it totally. It jolted my classical world and introduced me to a whole new genre, which led to jazz and other things. So I understand your point. It, it's it's all connected, you know. Yep. Hey, back when you were in high school, you, you know, your area, I guess, of concentration at the time was was art. But you, uh, I guess, you yeah. ultimately decided to enroll in the School of Music at Roosevelt University in Chicago. But I guess at that time, were you initially looking at art as a career choice? Um. Yeah, I was actually. Um, I I thought about. And I had actually uh, qualified for a scholarship at the Art Institute in Chicago. Very mm-hmm. um, But over the summer between high school and college, I, I, I just, you know, I guess I just didn't have enough self-discipline and work ethic to um, 
you know, to really, you know, jump in there and do that. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of, you know, kept playing with my, you know, with my little, uh, my little quartet. And uh, then I went to Roosevelt University after that. Mm-hmm. Well, it was obvious that your career path was music, but do you, are you still involved in art at all? I mean, are you, are you still creating or visual art of any kind? Um, I haven't lately. Uh, when I do, I, I do collage. I do paper collage. Mm-hmm. Actually, I've done the, the artwork on a couple of my solo albums uh, are actually the pieces, yeah. some of my, my collage pieces. Yeah. yeah, there's two pieces there, and I was going to ask you that question. Who, who did that artwork? I, I love it. It's, it's, that was uh, me. That's beautiful. I love the simplicity of it. I, I, I dig it an awful lot. That's nice. You know, speaking of on the whole topic of art, you know, there have been some really prominent musicians over the years that have been extremely successful in both music and art. Sure, and, yeah. You know, one such example is, is John Lennon. And, you know, this may sound like an odd question, but do you feel like your visual art is kind of a visual interpretation of the way you write music? Interesting. Um, well, a psychiatrist might tell me that. <laughs> but, uh, uh, it's, it's possible. I, I, I tend to be a minimalist. Yeah. I like also what happens by accident, and I prefer sort of simple voicings, mm-hmm. um, you know, as far as harmonic structure is concerned. Uh, simple but interesting, not simple and boring, but simple and interesting. Uh, so, so yeah, I think that there's probably some similarities. Uh, it's probably just the way my brain's wired. Yeah. I should have brought in a psychiatrist for that question. We could have, we could have uh, analyzed that and broke it down. <laughs> <laughs> Give we me have the no, drugs now. No, no, <laughs> we have no couch in this place. No, don't, don't worry about it. <laughs> hey, as a songwriter, do you have a particular routine that you follow when you begin to write? I mean, we talked about a little later, a little earlier on about collaboration and and how the band approaches the music. But when you particularly, you know, in your pattern, um, do you have to isolate yourself, or do you you need to work with people? How 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 does Robert Lamb? Uh, um, well, as of a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I sort of decided I was going to stop collaborating <laughs> as much as possible. Okay. N- not for any particular reason other than I wanted to, I just, there were just some things I wanted to attempt again in sort of a minimalist vein, and I wanted to work alone mm-hmm. just to see what was there. And, and so uh, actually the, one of the first things that uh, came about was Come to Me Do from Chicago 30. Mm-hmm. So that was that was one of the first of a crop of songs that I've written by myself, and I do I do like to work by myself. I can take my time. I can really focus on what I want to say. I can change it right. as often as I like, or not at all. So yeah, um, I so I enjoy writing by, by alone as as much as I enjoy doing solo projects because yeah. you know for the same reason. Right. A, a lot of a lot of my favorite songs are songs I wrote by myself uh, for the Subtlety and Passion album, mm-hmm. and um, and in the process of recording that, I you know other than the producer, you know I w- I could just you know just change key or just you know change the whole approach of how I was going to sing it um, because I wasn't you know I didn't have to ask anybody else's opinion or or take into account someone else's taste or any of that sort of thing. So yeah. there's a lot to be said for working uh, solo. Yeah, regarding that uh, 2003 album, it was you just mentioned Subtlety and Passion, that uh, included several members f- from Chicago, including you know some past members. 
Uh, who were some of the past members that performed on the record, and um, why? Um, you know, uh, why were well, the only two? The, the only two that didn't uh, were Peter Cetera, because I, I just wasn't in touch with him mm-hmm. at, at that point. I have been since, mm-hmm. and uh, Bill Champlin, who uh, I invited to to sing on the album, but he was busy working on his his stuff, mm-hmm. and our schedules never quite coincided. Right. So, uh, so even though Terry Cat had passed, I was able to get him on the album. And uh, I got um, uh, Chris Pinnock, uh, actually the guitarist who followed mm-hmm. uh, Terry Kath into Chicago. Right. And um, also Marty Greb, who played sax and guitar with Chicago during the early 80s. And uh, I got just pretty much everybody else oh. uh, in the, who's in the band to, to come and play uh, a little bit on that album. Yeah. What was your all feeling, overall feeling of the of the album once it was done and and you're going to release it? I mean, it was uh, what kind of anticipation did you have for the project? Because it's been a very good success. Yeah, I I'm very proud of the album. Uh-huh. I isn't very much on it. Like with with each album, there's always something that you wish that you had done differently or right. you wish you could change. And and certainly, I can find moments in subtlety and passion that I that I wish I had I could improve. Um, but I felt very good and very complete uh, once that album was 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 ready. And you know, you you can work on these things forever. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can you know, just you know, you can just work on you can work on music in, in, for an infinite amount of time and just keep changing it. That's the nature of music. But at some point, you got to pull the plug and say this is finished. So mm-hmm. um, when I did that, I felt like it was finished. Right. Yeah. Having been in in the music business for you know more than forty years, you you've obviously seen a tremendous change in the music industry. Really, and, yeah. You know, just off the top of your head, this may be a more difficult question, but what are some of the changes that you feel positive about? And have there been some changes over the years that that have bothered you, or mm-hmm. some that you just didn't you're, you didn't care for? I, we're all waiting to see what is going to be the the fallout of the end of, or at least the decline of. Uh, of the CD, yeah. Mm-hmm. Although it was interesting, um, I was talking with the guys, a couple of the guys who were the founders of Tower Records, and I said to them, "Well, what you know, what have you guys been up to? You know, because Tower Records, as you know, has closed all its, all yeah. its stores." Right. right. So they said, "Well, for the last six months, we've been detoxing," <laughs> and um, I said, "Well, what's next for you?" And they said, "Well, actually." We're going to open a record store <laughs> online, right? <laughs> no, no, uh, a little record store. Well, maybe they will, but a little record store in Sacramento, which is, I think, where they started. Really? Yeah, a little waff, little place where you can walk in and buy. Are you serious? Really? That's so they're kind of yeah. starting. They're starting over. In, in yeah, a sense, kind of. I said, well, yeah, but what's going to be different about it? And they said, well, there's still a large part of the population that wants to hold, you know, either an LP or a CD in their hands. It's the the tactile nature of that in addition to listening to the music. Mm-hmm. And and so that they they felt that there was the possibility of of issuing, you know, albums if you will, you want to call them albums, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, CDs or whatever, uh but but that were as interesting as, you know, offering, more interesting than just offering things with bonus cuts, right. but, you know, 
kind of going more into the special packaging thing with, you know, a, the elaborateness of, let's say, uh, I don't know if, if you've ever seen the the Chicago at Carnegie Hall box. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, yeah. With all the books and the posters and the stickers and everything else. Yeah. You know, there's got to be a way to that people still enjoy that, whether it's in a CD format or some other format, mm-hmm. rather than strictly downloading. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Well, isn't that sort of what Rhino is sort of doing also? I mean, they have so Rhino's many... kind of doing that too. Yeah, right? they... that's exactly right. I've got some compilations of the 70s and incredible books and Earth, Wind, and Fire compilations and ELO in Chicago. And, and you're right. It's that one. And maybe it's our era. You know, I'm, you know, I'm pushing 50 or I'm 48. And I, and I, I am used to the liner notes. You know, I used yep. to love opening up new records, taking out the cellophane and looking at the liner notes of a Celia Dan or Fleetwood Mac uh, record and Listen to it, Gold Dust Woman, and you see and you're reading it, and it's a big sheet of paper, and you're and you're drinking it in in every single way, you know. It's a great experience. It is. It it really is. I think that's a great thing that they're going to be doing, you know. So I think there's a whole generation that hasn't had that experience. Mm-hmm. They don't know that experience. You're right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's what these guys are thinking that, you know, at some point, your daughter, my daughter, whatever, is going to put the iPod down and say, you know. You know, I want I want some other kind of music, some other thing to happen when I'm listening to music, yeah. right. other than you know just kind of skipping around on my, on my iPod. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love my my little iPod. Sure. I have an iPod Mini that I love. Yeah. But it's it doesn't give me everything that I want. Yeah. I, I to- as, uh, musical experience. Totally agree. That's cool. Hey, well, going back to Chicago real quick, you're uh, going to be on the road for <clears throat> excuse me most of the summer, and, and many of the dates are, are with America. And after this tour is up, what's next for Chicago? Um, well, our last dates are in December. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking about we've been talking about trying to do a project with an outside executive producer who has already talked to some artists that we'd like to work with that that we want to either perform songs that they write for us or perform songs that they write with us or perform songs that they arrange, perform our songs that they arrange for us or have them perform with us, you know, that kind of thing. Where we put together sort of a wish list of people that we'd like to work with, and it's everybody from um, Usher to... Uh, John Legend to mm-hmm. John Mayer to Sting. That's cool. To um, Barry Gibb, you know. So there are a lot of people that we've sort of reached out to, uh-huh. and so far a lot of people are interested. It's still very much in the talking stages, mm-hmm. and uh, that's that could conceivably be the next thing for us. Yeah, it's very cool. Well, you've definitely had an incredible, I think, uh, in my opinion, in keeping an eye on Chicago over the past year and a half. You definitely have incredible momentum. Although everything from the coming off the Earth, Wind, and Fire tour uh, this summer, I saw you guys uh, on 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 television. On the I guess it was the NBC Today Show in the morning. How yeah. how crazy was that to start playing? You know, at seven o'clock in the morning in New York City, I saw you there and and the tour with America. I mean, you guys have great momentum, and I. Uh, you know, I definitely wish you the 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 same momentum and success uh, in the future, and uh, and we'll be keeping in touch with you. Okay, that's great. I enjoyed talking to you guys. Great. Yeah, thanks so much for being with us. I appreciate the time, and I'm a huge fan. And this was a real pleasure for me. Yeah. Thanks, Rick. Take care, and we'll talk to you soon. See you later, Robert. Bye bye. Bye. Special thanks to Robert Lamb for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. 
Our goal is to bring you a new podcast once every other week. So be sure to check your podcast downloads for the next episode of Inside Music Cast. If you have a question or a suggestion for the show, please drop us an email at input at insidemusiccast.com. That's input at insidemusiccast.com with one C. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Stay subscribed to Inside Music Cast, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for downloading Inside Music Cast, the podcast devoted to the musicians, fans, and the people who make the music business happen. Your subscription is appreciated, so be sure to check your podcatcher for our next episode. You can also visit InsideMusicCast.com for additional content. If you'd like to contact us via email, the address is input at InsideMusicCast.com.